Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchange church. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Well, good morning. So, well, thank you. It's good to see you. Brother Charles and his wife. Uh, everybody else, good morning to you. Uh, so good to, to have you this morning. Listen, uh, for all of our guests, we're so happy that you're here. For those of you that that uh, are that come pretty often, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, if you weren't here last week, today we are in part two of a four-part series that we started last week, and this series is entitled Leading Through. Everybody say Leading Through. There you go. Audience participation, it helps us go faster, and I get you out in time to beat the Baptist to lunch. And so if you don't talk, I won't, I'll go a lot slower. And so I need a big amen. Thank you. Uh, But leading through, and the subtitle to this would be uh, Three Essentials for Navigating Uncertainty. And we talked about this last week, but um, the past year, the past several months has just uh, left a lot of people and, and our nation, or really the world as a whole, in this kind of uh, moment of uncertainty, you know, kind of a scary moment for some people. And, and it's really been brutal for some people. And a lot of us have been left in the wake of what's happened, and we've been left to pick up the pieces and try to put back life, try to put back work, and try to put back, you know, all those things. And so uh, it's been difficult, but um, it's, we're, we're moving forward the best we can. Now, in moving forward, a lot of you would, would probably feel like I do. Uh, in going through this, a lot of us have a sense of responsibility because we are leading people through this. Uh, you, you play a role in, in leadership somehow, some level, so, to some degree, and you're help, helping lead and navigate people through this. Maybe it's uh, family members, maybe it's employees or team members or students, whatever, but you are trying to help navigate and lead people through kind of these uncertain and crazy moments. So this morning, if you are a parent, if you are a manager, if you are a uh, business owner, um, if you are a coach or a teacher, or maybe you're on a, a board or, or a city council or something like that, listen, if that's you, you need to understand that people are always looking to you for direction. And not only are they looking to you for direction, but in times like what we're going through now, they're looking to you for inspiration and they're looking to you for hope. They're, they're looking to you because you have some level of influence in their life, and they're trying to draw some hope in this unstable, kind of crazy season that we've been going through. And as you know, we, I said this last week, but just to recap, leading in general, being a teacher or a coach or a, a, a business owner or a manager, leading in general is hard enough. But leading through times like what we've been going through, it's not for the faint of heart. And I said this, but I won't tell. If you won't tell, but we don't have all the answers. Amen? We just don't have all the answers. And some of us were kind of going through this blindly to a certain extent because 
We don't have all the answers. We don't know what to do in every situation, but we're just doing the best we can as we go along. So there's no point in kidding ourselves, and there's no point in kidding those who are looking to us for inspiration and leadership and pretending that we have all the answers. Because uncertainty makes leadership uncertain, right? But uncertainty, it's a part of life. Uncertainty is a part of the leadership equation. In fact, uncertainty is why the world needs leaders. If, if everything just always went along great and we had no uncertainty, there would not be as great of a need as there is today for leadership. So, uncertainty is why your family needs you. Uncertainty is why your company needs you. So here's what we're doing in this series. It's why your city, your community, your neighbors need you. So here's what we're doing in this series. If you're just catching up, if you're watching online, we're so glad that you're a part and you're connected with us. But in this series, we're discussing three essentials for leading or for navigating through uncertainty, through navigating through times of disruption. Now, these are non-negotiables. They're uh, they're um, irreducible minimums, but they're always important. They're always important in general, but they're especially important during these times of uncertainty. So last week we kicked off things, and if you were here, you'll kind of remember. I'll recap a little bit, but we kicked off things going back into the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Scripture, uh, what we call the Old Testament, and we were presented with uh, a, a big picture that relates to us as role in our role as leaders it relates to us in our role as influencers and it reminded us of these things we talked about it last week leadership is number 1 anybody remember that it's stewardship okay leadership is stewardship it's a loan it's an opportunity leadership is a responsibility we don't have people we have responsibility to people and we have a responsibility for people. That's part of leadership, and that's why leadership, number one, was a stewardship. We talked about this last week. Number two, leadership is temporary. Leadership is temporary. In other words, the clock is ticking. Time will eventually run out on our influence. Time will eventually run out on our authority. And we don't like to think about that, but the reason that, that leadership is temporary is because we are temporary. We don't know how long we're going to be around. We don't know how long we're going to have this, this level of influence. And there is an expiration date. And that expiration date should inform our posture and our tone and, and our humility as leaders. So we learned that stewardship, uh, leadership is stewardship. Leadership is temporary. And the third thing we talked about was leadership. In leadership, we are accountable. In leadership, everybody is accountable to somebody Everyone has someone in their life that is holding them accountable to how they steward or how they lead people and the, the people that they're responsible So if you're a theist, uh, or more importantly, if you're a Jesus follower, um, there, here's what we know. There's actually a divine component to this as well. So last week I laid all that context, and that's just a real broad stroke context to where we're going over these next three weeks. Um, but the first that I want to dive into of these three kind of non-negotiables uh, uh, in leading during times of uncertainty is this. Here we go. 
every leader exercises authority on two levels. Okay? Now, we, we encourage you, if you want to take notes anytime, or, or a lot of people, they just take pictures of the screen as, as things go up there. But this is a good time for you to kind of capture some of these things because every leader exercises authority on two levels. Now, on one side of it, you have a level that is immediately apparent. On the other side, you have a level that becomes apparent. Uh, one level determines the leader's influence within a defined context. The other level determines their influence beyond that context. Now, immediately apparent is our, and this is what we're going to call our positional authority. Everybody say positional authority. Positional authority would be like a father or a mother or a teacher or a coach or a boss, an executive you know, these are all a police officer. These roles right here are what I want us to think about when we think about positional authority, okay? We pay attention to these people because they have a specific position or a role in our lives in which they have an automatic and an immediate authority over us. Now, the second level of authority that I want to talk about, it has nothing to do with their position, but it has everything to do with their influence. In fact, people who have the most influence in our lives, if we think about it, probably have one, some of the least amount of authority over us. People who have the greatest influence and greatest impact in our, in our lives, a lot of them have the least amount of authority over us because they don't have a specific role or a specific position they play that we have to be submissive to. Does that make sense? Thank you, Brother Charles. Appreciate that. They have authority that extends beyond even a title or it extends beyond even a time frame. And this is what we're going to call moral authority. Everybody say moral authority. So you have your positional authority that's a role, uh, a title that someone has, and that kind of gives them a, a, a bit of authority over you. And then you have people in your life that operate on a level of moral authority. They have moral authority, and here's why, because there's an alignment that you've seen. So when there's moral authority, that means there's an alignment between what they say and what they do. It lines up. There's a moral authority because of what they expect of us lines up with also what they expect of themselves. Somebody say an amen, right? That's good. And, and, and when you see those things begin to line up, all of a sudden it begins to pile on what we would call moral authority. Moral authority is credibility that they've earned by walking their talk. Okay? They've gained credibility because they do what they say they're going to do. They, they live out what they expect you to live out. They walk their talk, and that gives them credibility. They are who they claim to be because they are who we discovered that they are. And that lines up, and that gives people moral authority. And moral authority, this is why it's so important. Moral authority equals influence. When there's a difference between what somebody says they're going to do and what they do, or what they expect of us and what they expect of themselves, what happens? 
This is audience participation Sunday. When, when there's a difference in what they say they're going to do and what they do, when there's a difference in what they expect us to do and what they do, what, what tends to happen is we start to lose respect, right? I can't get this open. There we go. They start to lose respect, and consequently, when we lose respect, they lose influence, Right? Come on, you have people in your life that you suddenly have seen something that wasn't in alignment. It didn't like, they said one thing, they did another thing. The line started getting wider and wider and wider. You begin to lose respect and they begin to lose influence. Their moral authority begin to diminish. Amen? And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Because we are far more easily influenced by people we respect right when there's people that we don't respect we have a hard time uh, uh, being influenced by them moral authority it creates respect it makes a person respectable it makes you respectable it makes me respectable when someone lacks moral authority it's hard listen you you would agree with this it's hard to listen and receive what they're saying when they don't have moral authority in your life. Uh, and it's not necessarily because of what they're saying. What they're saying is probably really good, but it's who's saying it. Right? Have you ever, have you ever had somebody that gave you advice and you're like, man, in your head you're like, that's good advice, but I'm not listening to you. Because... <laughs> You don't even take your own advice. You say one thing and you do another thing. And so, so you've kind of like disqualified yourself from me even having the opportunity to listen to you because it doesn't make any sense. It's what you're saying is good, but who's saying it? I just, you don't have authority in my life. That makes sense? Good. I'm glad you guys are awake with me this morning. For example, it may be a bit painful, but I just want to use this for an example. Uh, but if you grew up in a household with, with parents that had a substance abuse problem, or, or you grew up in a household with parents that had a, a gambling habit that kind of compromised the stability of your own home growing up, you probably had a hard time listening or receiving the discipline that came from those parents. It's not because of what they said, but it's because of the actions and the lives that they lived while they're telling you one thing and they're kind of making decisions that are undermining their own stability as parents. Does that make sense? And, and a lot of people grow up in those situations, and, and that's kind of what I'm talk, talking about this morning, and you may understand that. So the bottom line is simply this. Positional authority provides a limited amount of time. That's positional authority. And like I said, that's a supervisor, that's a boss, that's an executive, that's a coach, that's a teacher, that's a police officer. Positional authority. But moral authority provides a person with influence in a variety of contexts for an indefinite period of time. Moral authority or the influence that we get from walking our talk is always more important, and it's especially more important during times of uncertainty. Now, now we're going to get into the scripture, okay? Now, the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, 
the Jewish scriptures provides us with a ringside seat uh, in a story about a leader whose moral authority gave him extraordinary influence during a time when the nation was at its most vulnerable. The nation was full of instability and uncertainty. And we're going to talk this morning about a man named Nehemiah. Anybody, anybody ever heard of Nehemiah? Okay. Now, a lot of people have heard a little bit about Nehemiah, but they've only kind of received glimpses of, of who he is. And so I'm going to kind of give you the backstory. If you were here last week, this will make a lot more sense because I'm going to kind of tie these two stories together. But Nehemiah was a Jewish exile. Now, remember we talked about last week when King Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem and he, he took over the city and he, he took the brightest and the smartest and, and the, the richest and all that and he took them hostage. Y'all remember that story? And he took them back to Babylon and a part of those hostages were Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and then Daniel. And he took them as hostages back. Well, Nehemiah's family... Uh, was a part of that group. And so Nehemiah was an exile living in Persia around the 5th century. And Nehemiah had worked his way up in the rankings in the government. And he was the personal assistant uh, or he was the, the attendant to uh, King Artaxerxes I. Now, King Artaxerxes, he was the king of Persia. By this time, when this story takes place that we're going to talk about today, Israel had been a, a, a vassal state for 250 years. In other words, they had no independence. They had been paying taxes to somebody for 250 plus years. First, they were paying taxes. They were under the, the thumb of the Assyrians. Then they were under the thumb of the Babylonians. And now it's the Persians that they're paying taxes to. And so they've not had their own independence. Now, the story that we're going to talk about today, if we were to rewind 130 years, that's the story we talked about last week, okay? Now, I'm going to just refresh your memory, off my memory, for just a second. I should have written this down. But we have Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. I mean, he was the king, uh, yeah, he's king in Babylon. And what happens is uh, Nebuchadnezzar dies, a few other kings come in, and then there's King Nabonidus. Nabonidus is king. Then all of a sudden, Nabonidus sees uh, Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, coming to attack them. So Nabonidus takes his Babylonian army, goes outside of the walls to attack Cyrus the Great, and Cyrus the Great and his army decimates the Babylonians. They take Nabonidus as hostage. So Nabonidus, while in the city, had appointed Belshazzar, to be the kind of guru over the city. Belshazzar, he says, okay, now I'm the king. They have Nabonidus. He re-enforces re, uh, the walls and the gates, and he throws a party. Y'all remember? He's throwing this huge party, blah, blah, blah. And that was part of my sermon last week. Cyrus the Great takes the Euphrates River that runs under the walls and right through the city, and he kind of uh, moves the trail. He, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Reroutes. He reroutes the river so that the water level goes down and, and the Persians are able to go under the wall, attack the guards, open up the gates. And, and that night, uh, we know that Belshazzar, King Belshazzar, was killed. 
Okay? So that's what I'm talking about. 130 years later is the story that we're at right now. But what I want you to note is when Caesar the Great came in and they attacked the city and Belshazzar was slain, here's what Caesar the Great said, uh, Cyrus the Great, I keep saying Caesar, Cyrus the Great, here's what he said to all of the Jews who had been exiled that went back to your homeland. Here's what he said to them. He said, hey, if you want to go home, back to your homeland, you can, okay? I know this is not your home. You were brought here. You were brought here as hostages. But if you want to go back to your homeland, you can go. And so a lot of Jews, they headed back to Israel. They headed back to, so look at Israel as like what we would refer to as like the United States. And then you look at Judah uh, when I talk about Judah, it's more like the state, the area like Texas, and then Jerusalem would be more like Houston, okay? So these, these exiles, they basically take off, and they head back home to Judah, back to their homeland. Well, a lot of them decided they didn't want to go back. They have now lived uh, in Babylon for three, four generations, I mean, their dad's dad's dad lived here and built this place, and, and they built their farmlands, and they built their houses. And, and so a lot of them had, had been there so long, they didn't have any connection to the homeland, and so they decided to just stay there. And that was Nehemiah's family. Nehemiah's family, when Cyrus the Great took over, Nehemiah's family said, you know what, we'll just stay. We've been here for a long time. Nehemiah now, 130 years later, has worked his way up, and he's right, you know, he's the assistant to King Artaxerxes. I hope I didn't confuse anybody this morning, but I was trying to give you a little bit of history. So, now, what's going on is these families that are back, that returned to Judah, they had a terrible time. The families that listened to King uh, uh, Cyrus the Great and decided to go back to their homeland, it was terrible. It was terrible because the economy in Judah was awful. The economy in Jerusalem was terrible. The nation was struggling economically. They were struggling militarily for decades. And the walls that had surrounded the city that were so powerful at one time, they had not been repaired since Nebuchadnezzar came in and invaded the city a hundred plus years before this. So the, the city and the whole region was really terrible. And, and not only that, all the neighbors surrounding the regions of Judah, they were taking advantage of the people of Judah and taking advantage of the people of Jerusalem. And they were making sure that they never became a superpower again. And so that's kind of where we're living with. So if you're familiar with Nehemiah's story at all, Nehemiah's story goes like this. He was heartbroken at the plight of the people as they went back to Judah and they went back to an economy that was broken. They went back to a city who was, that was not secure. They, they went back to a place where everyone, all the, the areas around the region took advantage of them and abused them and used them. And, and that broke Nehemiah's heart. And so Nehemiah began to pray for an opportunity to do something. Even though they stayed there in Persia and, and that was his place and, and that was his, his people now, 
uh, originally he knows who he is and he knows where he's from. And it broke his heart to see them in such bad shape. And so he prayed for an opportunity, prayed for an opportunity. And all of a sudden an opportunity presented itself. Actually, he presented the opportunity to his boss, King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah, one day, he goes to King Artaxerxes, and he says, listen, if you would allow me to, I would love to go back to my homeland. I would love to go back to Judah and and Jerusalem, and I would love the opportunity to help them rebuild the economy, to help them rebuild the wall. They are are so vulnerable. They're the laughing stock, and it's terrible, And, and, and that's my blood. My bloodline flows from there. If you give me the opportunity, I'd like to go back, and you know what King Artaxerxes said? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not only that, not only will I allow you to go back, I'm going to pay you to go back. I'm going to load you up with money, and I'm going to pay for this whole thing. I'm going to pay you to go back. Not only am I going to pay you to go back, he says this. He says, I'm going to give you a title. I now make you the governor of Judah. That's a pretty good deal, right? I mean, Nehemiah's heart was just to go back and help the people. And now all of a sudden, he's, he's got the finances to do it. He's got the winner of Judah. Now, if you grew up in church, when you hear Nehemiah and you think of the story of Nehemiah, what you probably think of is how quickly Nehemiah rallied the people and they rebuilt the wall, right? And they rebuilt the wall so fast, and, 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 and Nehemiah, he was working on the wall himself. He's actually the governor, and he's working physically on the wall himself. This is a big deal. But the, the rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem is not the point of the story that I want to focus on for the next few minutes. The broken down walls around the city of Jerusalem, they were just one of many many problems facing the citizens in the city. After Nehemiah, he went back to the city to to start his conquest, to rebuild the walls, rebuild the economy. After he was there for about a year to 18 months, almost two years, he discovered that there was a, a problem that was so insidious. It was so bad. It was way worse than having a few holes in the wall around the city. This, this problem was so bad. He finally, after being there for a year and a half, two years, he finally got to the root cause of the problem in all of their economic woes, okay? He figured out what's going on. And here's what was going on. After being there and investigating and watching and paying attention how the economy was working, all of a sudden he began to realize what had happened was that all of the people surrounding the region of Judah, they would go into Jerusalem and they would go into Judah and they would say, listen, we're going to help you buy that farm or we're going to help you do this. We're going to help you do that. And they would loan them money at just the most unbelievable interest rates possible. Way higher than Chase, way higher than Capital One, okay, way higher than all, I mean ungodly interest rates. And Nehemiah, as, as he starts to discover this, he realizes this is the problem. This is the problem. It, it has decimated our economy. 
So when Nehemiah shows up, he uses his own money, the money that King Artaxerxes sent with him back to Judah and back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah uses his own money to pay off almost every one of their debts. He takes his own money and he pays off all the debts. He, he regains back all the land and all the animals and all the, all the things that had been compromised and put up as collateral, all put back, and he pays off almost all their debts, and immediately it jump starts the economy back in Jerusalem. You can imagine, right? Finally, all of a sudden, the people in Jerusalem and Judah, they've got cash. They've got money to spend because these ridiculous interest rates that they had been paying were paid for. Their, their debts were canceled ultimately. And so all of a sudden, Judah and and Jerusalem, they're in a great place. And the economy just starts working. It starts flowing. Everything's going good. A few years, we don't know exactly the time frame. There's a lot of, uh, you can kind of narrow it down within a, a few years. But a few years passed by. The economy had been doing great. All of a sudden, the economy not doing so great. It just starts going down. Starts going down and down. Nehemiah is puzzled. He's frustrated. He's trying to figure out what's going on with the, the money. What's going on? And, and so he starts investigating. He starts hearing rumors. And when he hears these rumors, here's what the rumors are. The rumor has it that all the rich people, the nobles and the wealthy people living in Jerusalem, we're talking Jews, okay, people like me, they started doing the same thing that all the foreigners did. They started going to the poor people saying, hey, I'll give you a loan. I'm going to help you out. I'm going to give you some loans so you can do whatever you want, you know. So you can, and, and, and the interest rate is, you know, don't worry about that right now. But the interest rate was unbelievable. And these Jews, these Jewish people that were doing this, they required that to get this loan, you put up your wife as collateral. You put up your kids as collateral. And you put up your farm and house as collateral for the loan. And you know what? These poor people did. They did it. They put up their farm. They put up their wives and their, their children as collateral. And they took these loans from their own people. <laughs> Nehemiah hears this. He hears this, having gone through, and I hope you have a context what I'm talking about. He just paid off all their debt from all these foreigners around, got the economy going again, and now it's happening again from their own people. So he is furious. And Nehemiah tells us in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, which is kind of Nehemiah's diary, basically, of, of his life, he tells us in this book exactly how he responded when he found out what, what was going on. And he wrote this in the book of Nehemiah, chapter number 5, verse 7. He says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I was furious. I was beside myself. And then he says, I pondered them in my mind. I didn't react. I didn't respond. I, I just held on to it, and I thought about it, okay? I thought about how to deal with this. And then he goes on, and he says, I pondered it in my mind, and then, after I thought about it, I went and I accused the nobles and the officers. I went to the wealthiest people 
in the area, and I accused them. And here's, here's what I, I said to them. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as, far as possible, and he's talking about he and, and the people that came with him from Persia. He says, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. He says, when I got here, the city was in so much debt to outsiders that we were in so much trouble. We, we, we had so many money problems. But when I came, I used my own money and I bought the people back. I bought the people out of debt with my own money. And now I find out. And he goes on and he says, now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. He'd already spent a fortune buying the Jews and buying their debt uh, uh, from out of slavery from the foreigners. And now he's going to have to do the same thing from people that live right there in their own community, from their own neighbors, from their own friends, you know. Hey, you know, you're my friend. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a loan. You're my friend. And, you know, it's only, you know, 73% interest. Don't worry about it, you know. Don't think about it. That's literally how, how this story goes. And so Nehemiah is furious. So he goes on and he says, as he's telling us what happened, he tells us this, that uh, they kept quiet which is no surprise to you and me, right? As he's chewing everybody out, he says they kept quiet because they couldn't find nothing to say. They had nothing to say. He goes on and he says, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? He says, do you not realize what you've done? We are a laughing stock. Our neighbors to the north, our neighbors to the south and to the east and to the west, they're laughing at us. You have put our economy in a very vulnerable state. You have put our security in, in a very vulnerable state. Everything, you have compromised us as a nation. Do you not realize what you've done? And then he goes on, and he's not done, and he says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Now, the reason he brings this up is according to the Torah, and, and these people, they love the Torah, they followed the Torah. The Torah actually encouraged them to loan money to other Jews and especially to poor people. So the Torah told them, you need to loan money to Jews. You need to loan money to people in need. But the Torah also told them, you are not to charge interest. You are not to take any animals or any property or anything of value as collateral. Because that's not the way we do it. And so they knew all of that. And so Nehemiah, he points his finger at them and he says, look, I want you to give back to them immediately. So he's telling all the rich people, all the nobles, he says, look, I want you to give back to them immediately their fields, give it back. I want you to give back their vineyards. 
I want you to give that you, you took from them, but I want you to give them back all the interest that you have taken from them. They basically had took everything they could from the, the citizens, especially the poor people in the region. And Nehemiah says, I want you to give all the possessions back, and I want you to give all the interest back. Anybody want to know how they responded? Because <laughs> this is interesting. Here's how they responded. Okay, we'll give it back, and we won't demand anything else from them. We'll do what you say. That was their response. Well, Nehemiah is no fool, so he doesn't trust them. They're all saying, okay, okay, Nehemiah, we'll do that. We'll give it all back. Okay, guys, give it all back, you know, and the money you own, so you got to give everything back. And Nehemiah's like, okay, yeah, okay, I see how this is going. So Nehemiah goes, and he takes all the nobles, and, and he takes all the officials, and he gets a priest. <laughs> I love this. Nehemiah, he totally traps them. And he says, then I summoned a priest, and I made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they actually promised that they were going to do. And then he says, and I took my robe, and I shook out the folds of my robe, and I said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. And then... The people did as they had promised, right? It wasn't good enough to just say, okay, okay, we're going to stop taking it back. We're going to give it back. No big deal. He made them make an oath, a promise. Now, and, and it, they did. They returned everything that they took. They returned all the possessions. They returned, you know, the, the cattle, the houses, the farms. They returned people. They returned all the interest. But when you read this story, if you don't understand the context, you read this story and you go, yeah, right. So Nehemiah gets up there and he tells the people, I've had enough. I want you to give back everything you've taken and all the money you've taken. And these people have gotten richer from these people. And he says, I want you to give back everything you've taken. And they respond by saying, okay, we'll give it back. We'll go to our savings account and drain it and give them all the interest that they've that we've been taking, right? Does that sound crazy to you? It sounds kind of ridiculous that they would just listen to him. But when you read it as just a Bible story, that's kind of how it comes off. It's just a Bible story. Nehemiah said, give it back, so they gave it back. That doesn't seem real realistic, but when you read it in context and you understand that this wasn't just a, a one-and-done event. This had been happening. This had been building for years. When you read it that way, it makes a lot more sense. The reason that Nehemiah was able to say what he said when he said, give it back, the reason that Nehemiah's words carried so much weight was how he had conducted himself for 12 years. 12 years. Twelve years he had now been back in the city of Jerusalem. His reputation preceded him. His reputation stood in stark contrast. He was completely different than any other governor they had had before him. Completely different. And, and so he carried, his words carried all this weight. Nehemiah says it like this. Moreover, he said, moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the, in the land of Judah until his 32nd year. 
That's 12 years. 12 years. When he says this, he's trying to help them understand in context. And when I say this, I'm really trying to help us understand the context. Because he's saying this was 12 years in the making. He says this, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governors. Now, why is this important? Because as the governor of Judah, when he was given the title as the governor of Judah, he actually was given the legal right to charge taxes and collect taxes for his own uh, income. That's how they made a living. So he had the legal right to charge taxes, and people paid those taxes, and that's how he made a living. Not only that, as the governor, he was allotted a certain amount of free food from every farmer in the region. That's how he ate. That's how the governors fed their royal house and the families and all the servants and their workers was from the food that they would take from the people. But it wasn't stealing or taking. They were the governor, and that's how they were paid. And Nehemiah says, ever since I've been here for 12 years, neither I nor my brothers have eaten anything. We've not taken any of the food that was allotted to the governor. This is a big deal. So for 12 years, 12 years, I, I didn't once exercise my right and my authority because of my position as the governor. I had the position and the authority to take your money. I had the position and I had the authority to take your food. It was my right. And he says, not once did I do that. And he goes on and he says, but the earlier governors, the ones excuse me, that came before me, that preceded me, they placed a heavy burden on the people. And they took 40 shekels of silver, which was very expensive, 40 shekels of silver from them, in addition to food and wine, and not just the governors, but he goes on and he says, their assistants also lorded it over the people. Everybody, all the previous governors all the previous governor's assistants all abused their authority, especially their positional authority, and they took from, from people, and they, they stole. And they, they basically just took the wealth, and they took the, the food. And now, now, fast forward, Nehemiah is the governor. Who do you think all these wealthy Jewish people took their cues from? The governors that had gone before, right? The governors used to do it. I mean, they made a lot of money doing that. They, they, they were wealthy. And so they just began to do like that, previous governors. And then I love this next statement. Nehemiah says, but out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men, all my men were assembled there for the work. He's saying, I didn't ask anybody to do what I wasn't willing to do. I said I was coming back to rebuild the wall, and I focused, and I myself, that's what I did. So I came to money. I didn't take your food, but I sat there and I built a wall. That's what I did. So I came back to do. And he says, not only that, but we did not acquire any land. That was unusual for a governor because land was power. 
Property was power in those days. Property ownership was power. It was a sign of power. And Nehemiah says, you know what? I didn't take your food. I didn't take your silver. And I didn't go buy the land that I had the money to buy. I didn't do that. I did exactly what I came to do. You know what I came to do? I came to rebuild the economy. And I came to rebuild the wall. He says, verse number 18 of Nehemiah chapter 5. I never once demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were so heavy on these people. I cared about these people. For 12 years, I walked my talk. You know what? It carried weight. For 12 years, they saw this man not take from them. They saw this man not take their food. He didn't take their silver. He didn't take their money. He didn't lord over them his authority and his power. But what he did for years, he worked on the wall. What he did for years is, is he, he paid his own bills. He paid his own food for years out of his own pocket. He paid for himself. For years, all he did was kickstart the economy. All he did was look out for the people of Jerusalem and look out for the people of Judah for years. His lifestyle his, his genuine concern for the people, his lifestyle, his lack of entitlement, all of that shamed the nobles into submission. The reason that the nobles were so quick to say, okay, we'll give it all back. We'll do what you say. It's because they saw him live the exact life that he was asking them to live. He didn't say, I expect you to give back and give back and give back, even though I'm taking and taking and taking. He says, I expect you to do what I'm doing. I'm living for the people. I'm living for the cause. I'm living for this nation. I'm living for this government. I'm living for the poor and the less fortunate. And I'm not exercising my authority to lord over them, but I'm exercising my authority to build them up and to build this city up. Now that's good leadership, amen? That's, that's really good leadership. That's the kind of leaders that we want to follow. People like that. People who say something and then they do what they say. People who their life lines out with what they're talking about. And then it really goes back to this one idea. Moral authority. Moral authority is a tricky thing. And it's a tricky thing because Nehemiah gives us a good picture of it. But moral authority takes years to build. Moral authority just doesn't happen overnight for anybody. Moral authority takes years to build, but we're always one decision away. We're always one reaction away, one moment of losing our mind or losing our temper away from undoing and damaging all the things that we've worked towards in our moral authority. Moral authority is precious, but it takes time to build, and we can lose it so fast. Moral authority gives us influence beyond our position, and it's always important, but it's absolutely an essential during times of disruption and during times of uncertainty. And here's why. It's because the people who look to us, especially right now, they want to know this. Can I trust you? Can I trust you? And you all know this. This is not, you know, rocket science here, but um, trust is earned. 
Okay, trust is not just handed out like candy on uh, Halloween. Trust is earned. Trust is influence. Now, I want to bring this into kind of a sharper and maybe a little bit of an uncomfortable focus here. But I want you to think about this. You don't respect your parents because of what they required you to do. You respect or you have a lack of respect either way for your parents is determined by what they require of themselves. So the respect you have for your parents or the lack of respect that you have for your parents is really determined by what they, what they expect of themselves. And the same is true for us. Our lives always speak louder than our words. You could say a, a whole lot of things, but your words don't carry the weight your lives carry. Amen? Your words don't carry the weight that our lives do when, when we live what we're saying that we're going to live. So, with all this in mind, I want to give you three gauges, and I'm gonna, I'll wrap up here shortly. Three gauges to keep your eye on that will help you protect your influence. How many of you would like to protect your influence? Now, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you must not have any influence. So, I'm just kidding. So, as people, we want to protect the influence that we have. And if you're parents, you have influence over your children. And I think we want to protect that. We want to always guard and protect that. And so, this will help you protect and guard our moral authorities. Now, if you want to take notes, you can, you can write these down or you can uh, take a picture of them, whatever. But number one, pay close attention. Pay close attention to your internal and external response to authority. Okay? Pay close attention to your response to authority. How do you respond to authority? How do you respond to people that are over you internally because of how they responded to their own authority? Does that make sense? To, to how they respond. Listen, I used to say this to our, our Bible school students all the time. But if you consider yourself too important to be under, you're probably too immature to be over. Everybody wants position, right? Everybody wants to be over people. And when, when you're dealing with kids coming out of high school and into a Bible school, man, they're looking for position. They want power. And they want position. But they don't like submission, they don't necessarily want to be under authority. They want to be over. I'll give you a good example of this. Uh, when I was in Wichita Falls, Texas, my pastor, he put me in charge of a giant production that we had to do. This production was huge. It was so big that there was an article written about it in Seventeen Magazine. Uh, there, there, it was so big that people bust in from Oklahoma City and from Dallas, and, and we had two, three, four-hour waits in line for people to go through this production. It was a big, big deal. I'll never forget the first year that I was in charge. I was the boss. I was the boss baby, okay? I was in charge. This is my production. I tell everybody where to go. And my pastor walks in the first night, and he goes, where do you want me? Where do you need me? And I was like, pastor, you go wherever you want. He's like, no, you tell me where to go. And I was like, you know, you're the pastor. Uh, you could sit around in the coffee bar area and hang out with people. You say hi. And he says, no, you're the boss. 
You're the boss. You tell me where to go. You want me to go in hell and, and scare people or whatever? You want me to go over here and do that? You want me to go serve coffee? Do you want me to go take tickets? And I'm thinking, dude, you make a lot of money to be the pastor of a pretty large church, and you're just willing to do anything? And I learned that very day what it was like to be in authority but be able to go and submit to authority. He had given me authority in that moment. And, but when he came into this, this area, this arena that he put me in charge of, he who was above me submitted himself below me because he was mature enough to understand if you can be below, then you can be above. If you can't be below, then you can't be above. Does that make sense? And, and it was a lesson that I learned that I will never, ever forget. Number two. Pay attention to your sense of entitlement. Listen. Listen to the excuses that you make to justify your behavior. Well, I do this because. It's because. It's because. The behavior that you would not approve of in other people, behavior that you would not approve of in your own children. Shout me down when I'm preaching good. Imagine. Imagine someone you respect doing or saying the thing that you're contemplating doing and saying yourself. Listen, when I think about this kind of law right here, this, this has stopped me in my tracks more times than, than I care to even admit. Because I never want to do anything. We, my wife and I, we never want to do anything that undermines our influences as leaders. We never want to do anything that undermines our influences as parents with our children, that influences our, uh, that undermines our influence with the people that work for us and are around us, because we've learned that leadership is stewardship. It's stewardship. It's it's not having people, but it's taking care of those that you have. You have a responsibility to people. Leadership entitlement is a slippery slope. Maybe. You do deserve it, whatever it is. But Nehemiah, if there was anybody that deserved something, it was Nehemiah, right? He deserved to be paid. He deserved for people to pay taxes to him. Look at everything that he was doing for the city and for the the nation. He deserved it, right? If anybody deserved to have an allotment of food given to him because of his authority and his position, look at what he was doing for the nation. He deserved it. But if taking what you deserve undermines your influence, and I'm going to say this slowly so that everybody grabs a hold of this. If taking what you deserve undermines your influence or your moral authority, you need to think twice. Because odds are whatever it is that you think you deserve or whatever it is that, that you thought you deserved, you would trade may come. When you would trade in what you thought you deserved, you would trade it in for that influence. You would surrender it all to gain the respect back that we've given away. The last thing to pay attention to is pay attention to those imaginary conversations. Your imaginary conversations that are an expression of your frustration. Those imaginary conversations that are an expression of your anger and frustration when people 
when people make you mad, listen, it only takes one leak. It only takes it to leak one time to destroy moral authority. It only takes one leak to destroy and for you to lose credibility that you can never, ever get back. And listen, I'm sorry. You can say I'm sorry, and, and sometimes I'm sorry helps, but I'm, I'm sorry doesn't erase memories, and there's still damage done. And so, listen, when you make a mistake, own it. When you make a mistake, own it and make it right. Ask for forgiveness immediately, immediately. And when you ask for forgiveness immediately, when you make a mistake immediately, what happens is you begin to build back your credibility. You begin to build back your moral authority. And sometimes it's a start over. Here's the truth. We trust people who make mistakes. We do not trust people who make excuses. The upper room, that's a good one, right? Listen, we trust people that make mistakes because we get it. We make mistakes, but we don't trust people who all they do is make excuses. Moral authority, it is an essential during times of disruption and uncertainty. Now, to be clear, this is important. Moral authority, it's not an essential for leadership. Believe it or not, you can lead without moral authority. People are doing it all over the world, all the time. You can lead without it. Believe it or not, you can parent without moral authority. <laughs> Trust me. You live around it. You, we see it all the time. You can manage without moral authority. You can be a manager and manage without it. But here's what you can't do. You cannot be a leader worth following without moral authority. It doesn't work that way. You won't maintain your influence without moral authority. You can't maintain your respect without it. I said this last week, but listen, when people die, they're not remembered for their finest chapter, they're remembered for their final chapter. And the reason why is because we generally celebrate people, we celebrate and remember them for their moral authority, not their positional authority. And the same will be true about you. So I'm going to help, help you out, Elaine, if you'll come back. I'm going to help you with something that maybe will be beneficial to you. I prayed this prayer two or three times this week, especially thinking about this, this message. I've prayed this prayer thousands of times. Some of you have probably prayed this prayer. You've seen versions of this prayer probably posted around in different places. But I've said this, and this, this prayer has kept me on track more often than not. And, and maybe it will come in handy to you. But this prayer says, Heavenly Father... Give me the wisdom to know what's right, the courage to do what's right, even when it costs me. Even when it costs me. Because I've determined in my life, and, and I've not always done this well, I've not always made the right decisions. But I've done the best, especially over the last few weeks and months and the last year, tried to decide where I am and where I'm going and I've really decided that 
My moral authority is more important to me than my popularity. That my moral authority is something that's valued, that that I want to have a, a, a moral influence in people's lives, not because I, I did something cool or I preached something cool, but because they just watched me for a while and they said, you know what? That's what I want to be like. I, I want to have a, a moral influence in people's lives with my marriage. And, and because I want, I want people to go, that's what I want. You know, I've, we've had people say that, and we'll be in the middle of the worst fight ever. You know, we'll, we won't have talked to people like, for th- we won't talk to each other like two days. Come on, don't look at me like you're judging me. <laughs> Y'all been there. We won't talk to each other for like two days. And then we'll be holding hands kind of out of uh, the look show for everybody else that's watching us. Like hold hands, mad at each other, and somebody will say, "Oh, I want a marriage just like yours." And you're looking at them like, "Not right now, you don't." I'm mad at her. She really, really ticked me off, and she's behind me going, "You don't want this," (laughs) because we're real. We're real. We go through it. But the fact of the matter is, is, is I want to have an influence in people's lives that they can they can look to me for influence that they can look to me for answers not because i have a position and i'm a pastor and as a pastor you should have to look to me you should have to hear my advice but i want them to to look at me as a guy who sells roofs and and they go man you got a great thing going on you, you have a good thing, and I want to be like that. Moral authority is important, and especially in seasons and times of uncertainty. Your accomplishments may make your name known, but your character, your moral authority, will determine what people will associate when they hear your name. So guard it at all costs. Guard it at all costs. In my office, I have a, there's a chess box, a wooden chess box. Uh, and, and it says, I don't play chess. I'm not smart enough. I play checkers. So, But in this chess box, it says, at all costs, protect the king. Man, I look at that thing a lot. I tend to look at it the most when I'm not wanting to look at it. Those days that I really don't want to see it, I see it. And I look up and I see that. And I'm like, oh, man. At all costs, protect the king. Protect who who he is inside of me. Because that gives me influence. And when somebody needs it the most, I'm there. But this message today is not about me. It's about us, all of us. Because every single one of you have somebody. And for some of you, it may be your kids. And they think about you all the time. They look up to you all the time. You take it for granted. 
last night, I, I laid in bed, and I went outside and sat outside for a little bit, and I came back in, and, and all I wanted to do was hold my son. And here's why. Because he said something yesterday that just got me. He didn't even say it to me. But he said this. Shelly called her mom, and they, her mom had come and picked up Parker and taken him to their house. And she got stopped by the police in our neighborhood. She was going 30 in a 20. That's, that's the devil in my neighborhood. You do not go 30 in a 20. And she got stopped by the police, and Parker was listening. And when they left, <laughs> my mother-in-law, Mimi, said, Now, let's not tell anybody about this. Well, Parker, he's genius. So he tells her, well, if you buy me toys, I won't tell nobody. (laughs) And he's into these, what are they called? Bonky Kongs, whatever. I call them Donkey Kongs. He's into these Bonky Kongs. And he's got five of them. He told Mimi, he said, I only have five. And a lot of people have 20. And so she went and bought him a lot of them. They went home last night, and she says, so who are all your friends that have like 20? Because now you have 20. And he said, oh, none of my friends have them, but I see it on TV. (laughs) He's just brilliant. But but when she told him that he couldn't tell anybody for when she got stopped, he said, okay, I won't tell nobody. And then he said, but I have to tell my dad. Whew. That got me. And it's funny, and it's not a big deal to most people. But it's a big deal to me. Because I have moral authority. I have influence. Man, I want to protect that. I want to protect that by how I act, how I respond, how I act, how I treat his sisters, how I treat his mom, how I treat people, strangers. Because he's watching me. Man, he's watching me so close. And I'm so proud. So proud of that. Will you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Father, I pray right now for this house. Those that are here, those that are watching online. God, I just pray for an opportunity an opportunity of influence and and access into people's lives, into people's lives who are broken, who are hurting, and, and not so that we can have power or position, God, but because we've earned it. And so to do that, I pray right now, today, we begin to examine, we begin to kind of look through and, and siphon through our own lives and our own actions, and, and, we, and, and I pray that you help us to realize Help us to to see some things in our own life, some areas in our own life that maybe we've compromised our moral authority. Areas that maybe we've kind of compromised our influence in the people's lives who, who are looking up to us so much. And so, God, I pray that today we walk away from this place and we we start to look and examine and we start to make adjustments and tweaks and we make a few changes, God, so that we can rebuild what maybe we've just damaged in our authority. Maybe so that we can start, for some of us, maybe for the first time, 
building and setting a goal to build moral authority so that we can have uh, uh, realms of influence in people's life. But God, I ask right now, Lord, that, that you give us the, the wisdom to know what's right and to know the right moves. I pray you give us the courage to do it and to step out in faith, even when it costs us. Even when it costs us. Because ultimately, Father, we want to please you. And we want to be there for the people that you are. We want to be there for the people that you died for, that you gave your life for. And so we just pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.